of Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and in case you haven't noticed, the hordes are arriving. They're here. No, not the cicadas, or uh, the poltergeists for that matter. No, we're talking about summer interns, thousands of summer interns, many of them fresh-eyed and super eager to make their mark on politics, or at the very least, to have a grand old time in the nation's capital. And so today, as a tribute to the annual intern influx, we're doing a show all about rookies. We'll meet young activists trying to change the debate on immigration reform. Today, um, I'm going on legislative visits, trying to gauge whether we can get swing votes. And we'll hit the beach with high school grads savoring their first taste of freedom. People have an incredible time. They take a lot of stupid risks and they have a lot of fun. It's a crazy time. Plus, we'll hear from a rookie musician who landed a coveted one-year gig with the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. I think it's breathtaking. It's like what music would sound like in heaven. It's just beautiful. But before we get to all that, if you watched any movies or TV back in 1990, you might remember this movie trailer. Clint Eastwood is Sergeant Nick Polovsky, what you might call a seasoned cop. Charlie Sheen is Detective David Ackerman, what you definitely call a rookie. Good work, kid. Now read them their rights. The Rookie is your classic rookie cop, veteran cop flick. The veteran's all set in his old-school ways, the rookie's just getting his feet wet, and inevitably, at some point, the rookie decides he's ready to step up his game. It's time for me to stop being scared, for other people to start. Like, on TV, they make it look so cool. Um, You know, they jump out of the huge, like, black trucks, and they bust down doors, you know, police, everybody show me your hands. Kim Curry is a rookie officer with the Montgomery County Police Department. So I have to ask, in your experience so far, you know, you had those childhood dreams and visions of this, like, really exciting life. How does it compare so far? Yeah, I put it this way. I haven't jumped out of a black SUV and kicked down anybody's door. But at age 25, Curry has seen a fair share of action during her first 18 months as a patrol officer in Germantown, Maryland. I recently joined her on the overnight shift, riding shotgun in this totally tricked out SUV. Oh my God, this is quite the setup. Yes, it is. It's pretty intense. <laughs> And with help from continual updates on a laptop computer. So this computer is like the best thing that's ever happened to me. And a flurry of messages over the police radio. Yes, I could be for a critical mishandled earlier. Curry handled all sorts of incidents around Germantown. At 10 p.m. or so, we responded to a 911 call from a potentially mentally disturbed woman who claimed voices were threatening to kill her. County police. Then we pulled over a driver who blazed his way through a no-turn-on-red light. Good evening. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I stopped you because you ran that light back there. That's a no-turn-on-red light. you have your license and your registration on yes, you? Yes, ma'am, I do. And a little bit later, we provided backup to a senior officer who'd stopped a kid for drinking in an abandoned parking lot. By the time we arrived, the officer had cuffed the 19-year-old, who apparently had initially lied about his name and age. Who lied it out? It's up to the commissioner. I'm not sure... I didn't bother nobody or hurt nobody. Why are you trying to bother me anyway? All right, well, you can't lie to the police. I didn't mean to lie to you. I'm just scared, so. Kimberly Curry says her initial inspiration for getting in on all this action was her uncle. Growing up, my uncle was a police officer in this department for years. And 
he just was always a had a very demanding like presence when he walked into a room people paid him so much respect and I just admired that and that helped push me into it was it super intimidating I mean when you started oh yes I mean you have all these people with brass on their shoulders and you're like oh is that my sergeant is that my lieutenant I don't know who that is in the academy you had to get this you had to address them by their rank yet you could not look at them I'm like, um, without sounding like an idiot, how am I supposed to know what your rank is if I can't see your shoulder? But we, we mastered the art of glancing out of the corner of our eye to catch their rank. Curry says she and her 30 mostly male classmates also had to master all kinds of law, constitutional, criminal. Day one, we get there and there are two stacks of books on your desk and you can't see over top of them. But Curry made it through and now ranks as PO1 or Police Officer 1. Which, she tells me as we drive around Germantown, is basically the lowest rung on the ladder. You described, like, your position as bottom of the barrel. I mean, you still get to do a lot of stuff. Yeah, I mean, we have full police powers, so I get to do, like, everything. A PO3, which is the highest um, patrol officer. I mean, except for, like, sergeant. Um, We get to do all of the same stuff, but bottom of the barrel meaning if I go on a call with a PO3... He calls the shots. And quite often, Curry says, she actually prefers being so deferent. And there are times when you get on on scene of a call and you're like, I feel like a rookie. I don't know what to do with this. And then sometimes I run calls with the um, officers who just got out of the academy. So I'm the senior car? Oh, that's weird. (laughs) I'm like, I have six months on you. Like, that's it. But sometimes, she says, those six months can make a big difference. It's fun because... Then I actually feel like I know what I'm doing, and they don't. (laughs) And it's true. Curry says since getting out on the street, she's learned all sorts of things. The neighborhood, the people, not to mention all that cool police lingo. Um, Here's one I'd never heard before. 41? 41 means okay? Yeah, 41 means okay. That come from the old 10 coats. We don't use those anymore, but... 41, it's easier than I'm okay. Or And then sometimes even you say I'm okay, you use our phonetic alphabet, I'm Ocean King. Curry says in the police force, you're considered a rookie for the first five years. And once her five years are up, she hopes to get promoted and ideally keep protecting and serving the community here in Germantown, a place she's truly grown to love, even if it's nothing like a movie or TV show. I mean, I have some that I like, but it's really hard because you're like, that's not real. It doesn't happen like that. You you enjoy them when you're like, oh, I'm going to be a cop. I'm going to watch these shows. It's going to be awesome. But that's Hollywood, you know. The reality may be far less glamorous, far less dramatic. But PO1 Kimberly Curry says she can imagine being a cop for the long haul. For her, that would be positively 41, if not Ocean King. Our next story in today's Rookies show is about newcomers in the political world, more specifically in a political debate that's been raging since, well, basically since the founding of our nation, namely who should be allowed into the country and who can legitimately be called American. Next week, the U.S. Senate is scheduled to turn its attention to those very questions as it considers a major overhaul of the nation's immigration system. And as Jacob Fenston tells us, some of the people shaping this year's debate would barely be old enough to vote if they were citizens. 
Raymond Jose came to Maryland from the Philippines 13 years ago, when he was just nine years old. I found out about my immigration status my senior year of high school. His hard work at school was paying off. He'd gotten into college, and he found out he'd been offered three scholarships. From Penn State, University of Maryland, and Stevenson University, uh, I came home to tell my parents the great news. But his parents had news for him as well. His mom broke down in tears. She said in our native language of Tagalog, um, she said, Anak pagbigyan mo ako which means, my son, please forgive me. And I asked her, why are you asking for forgiveness? This is a happy moment. That's when she started to explain to me that we had overstayed our tourist visas. In other words, he was undocumented. He still is. I could be sent home any any time. Young, ambitious, and educated, people like Raymond Jose have become de facto spokespeople for the nation's 11 million undocumented immigrants. We are American in our hearts, but on paper it doesn't say so. For years, they've been pushing Congress to pass the DREAM Act. It would allow young people like Jose to become citizens. But now, these so-called DREAMers have expanded their activism. They're central players in the push for comprehensive immigration reform on Capitol Hill. That's where I met Jose recently. He was on a break during a busy day of meetings. Today, um, I'm going on legislative visits, trying to gauge whether we can get swing votes. The DREAM Act has failed in Congress again and again, but the DREAMers have managed to reframe the immigration debate, according to Elizabeth Keyes, who directs the Immigrant Rights Law Clinic at the University of Baltimore. They really opened and shifted the conversation um, out of that stalemate that we were in for years, since 2007. She says DREAMers moved the debate from being strictly about legality to being more about American identity. The DREAMers just interrupted and said, we're not in that conversation. We're in a different conversation. Many local DREAMers cut their activist teeth fighting for the Maryland DREAM Act, which voters approved last year. It gives undocumented immigrants in-state tuition. We went out to the streets. We marched. We rallied. I caught up with Claudia Quinones on her high school graduation day, still dressed up with her graduation cap. Quinones came here from Bolivia with her mother when she was 11. This past summer, she got interested in politics when she started looking at colleges and realized her immigration status was going to get in the way. At rallies last year, she spoke publicly about being undocumented for the first time. I felt as if a weight was being lifted from my shoulders. It was a relief to speak openly and to meet other kids who were in the same boat. I never thought that there were many other children like me suffering in the shadows. My name is Giancarla Rojas. I'm 19 years old. I've been in this country for six years. Giancarla Rojas first spoke out about her immigration status just a week ago. It's a big change from five years ago, the last time Congress seriously tackled immigration reform. Back then, Rojas says immigration officials were trying to deport her and her younger sister. Their parents sent the kids into hiding with an aunt in Maryland. For two months, we couldn't go out at all. And then after that, I was just really traumatized. And I didn't want to speak because they said, don't say anything, just don't talk, just go to school, come back to home. Now, even as these young people go public, many in the older generations are still reluctant. Raymond Jose got into trouble with his parents when he was featured in a local Asian newspaper. My family was on the front page of it, the picture of my family. And uh, I didn't tell my parents about it. They just asked for a family picture. His parents found a copy of the paper at a Chinese restaurant. They were like, what are you doing? Like, this is a picture of us. And it, like, you know, clearly states that we are undocumented on a piece of paper. Like, you know, and they tried to tell me to stop doing it. These days, he says his parents are uneasily okay with his activism. But the Dreamers have been so successful, it's led to a sort of strange situation. The immigration reform bill senators are considering includes a fast track for Dreamers like Jose to get citizenship in as little as five years. 
For other immigrants, like their parents, it would take more than 10 years. They say that we came to the country not on our own fault, uh, that we were brought here at a young age by our parents. But what they don't see is that our parents were trying to better our futures, trying to give us an opportunity that they didn't have. And they did it through the means that they, they had. Jose says he's confident Congress will pass immigration reform this time around. But whatever happens, he says he's found a new calling in political activism. I'm Jacob Fenston. Time for a break now, but when we get back, a first taste of adulthood as we splash around the chaos of Beach Week. When they arrive in Ocean City, they're still kids in a lot of ways, which is why they make so many terrible decisions. That and more in just a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today's show is dedicated to all the newbies, novices, and neophytes out there. We're calling it Rookies, and in this next segment, we're going to hear the tale of some people who are, in a way, rookies at the game of life. We'll hear more in our regular segment on the coast. In which Brian Russo brings us the latest from coastal Delaware and the eastern shore of Maryland. And this week, the latest is the arrival of thousands of high school seniors in beach towns like Ocean City. Locals call these teens June bugs. And depending on whom you ask, their presence is either considered a blessing or a bother. Brian Russo joins us now from our studio in Ocean City to talk about the impact June bugs have on the coast each year. Hey there, Brian. Hey, Rebecca. How are you? Good, good. So, uh, June bugs, how big, um, I'm going to say it, how big an infestation are we talking about there uh, in Ocean City? Well, this is the time of year we call Senior Week or Beach Week. It's it's much longer than just a week, though. It goes from sometime around Memorial Day all the way through the end of June. And by the end, thousands upon thousands of high school graduates will pass through places like Ocean City and Dewey Beach. So think of it kind of like an annual cicada swarm, but rather than weird-looking bugs, it's 17- and 18-year-old kids. And for most of these 17 and 18-year-olds, is it their first real taste of freedom? Absolutely. I I talked about that earlier this week with Ryan Geelan. He's a filmmaker who actually made a movie called The Graduates, a sort of -of coming-of-age comedy about senior week. Ever since I can remember, I've been coming down here, and this place has been flooded with high school students, and they all look like they're having a good time. Gin and plastic bottles. Cheaper. And I just wanted us to have a good time together before we... Before we go to college and never see each other again? Geelan says Senior Week is both a preview of adulthood and a chance to say goodbye to childhood and the people with whom you grew up. This is it. You know, everything you've ever wanted to say or do, you know you have like six or seven days left to do it. So people have an incredible time. They take a lot of stupid risks and they have a lot of fun. It's just, it's a crazy time. 
So I'm hearing stupid risks. I'm hearing crazy time. So can this time also get pretty crazy for the Ocean City police? I mean, what does the arrival of the June bugs mean for, for officers? Well, it's safe to say they're much busier this time of year in June. In the off season, like during April, for instance, they might get a couple thousand calls from the public. Whereas in June, that number can be way above 10,000. But what's particularly interesting this year is that the state law just changed and cops are now allowed to write citations rather than simply arrest people for certain offenses like possession of marijuana or disorderly conduct. Mike Levy is a spokesman for the Ocean City Police Department. He says this new law was designed to cut down on paperwork for police officers. But he's a little worried about how effective it's going to be when it comes to June bugs, especially those who consume alcohol. The concern uh, where we have large groups of, of kids who break the law by uh, consuming alcoholic beverages underage and um, we issue them citations because you can't, you know, they're no longer, they would, under their guidelines, they would be eligible for a citation. Um, how, how seriously are they going to take the citation at that moment? Mm-hmm. As we know, when people drink uh, and consume alcoholic beverages and get intoxicated, they generally, their decision-making capabilities are diminished considerably. Very true. Um, but so many of these kids live hundreds of miles away, right? So is it is it going to be hard to get them to comply with their citations and actually show up for a court date? Exactly. And so it's going to be really interesting to see how this new law unfolds with respect to these teens. So, Brian, I want to switch gears for a moment and talk about business owners in the area. How do local businesses feel about the influx of all these June bugs? It really depends on what your business sells. Lee Jarakis owns Malibu's surf shop on the boardwalk, and he thinks June bugs are bad for a resort like Ocean City, which, of course, markets itself as a family-friendly destination. You have people that have never been here before that happen to come in June because their little kids get out of school. And when they book their hotel room, nobody tells them what it is. And so their whole floor is 18-year-olds drinking beer. And they walk in here, and it's a little calmer, and they go, wow, we did not expect this. And I said, yeah, it's really a shame. And you know, they say, we'll never come back to this town. And to me, that's bad. It's, it's heartbreaking. But then you've got people like Yad Yarkaslit, who runs a lemonade stand on the boardwalk. He says 80% of his business in June comes from high school graduates. They keep us real busy, especially nighttime. Uh, for example, uh, my store can stay open until 4 o'clock in the morning because mm-hmm. of the senior weeks. They buy everything. And I think that's the best thing for the Ocean City, for the senior weeks, yeah. for the month of June. So clearly he's he's very much in favor of the June bugs. I mean, it sounds like he looks forward to Senior Week every year. Yeah, and people like Yarkislip may be in luck, too, because Senior Week seems to be an idea that's spreading well beyond the Maryland and Delaware schools that traditionally take part in it. Ryan Geelan, that filmmaker we heard from earlier, says for most kids, it's a moment in their lives they're never going to forget. And it's insane and crazy and confusing and wonderful. And it's just this really unique experience. There's nothing like it. Insane and crazy and confusing and wonderful. Uh, Brian, it sounds like you're in for quite the summer. Uh, Please keep us posted, won't you? You know I will. (laughs) All right. Brian Russo is the coastal reporter for WAMU 88.5 and the host of Coastal Connection on 88.3 in Ocean City, Maryland. And we want to know, did you or your kids ever come down to Ocean City for Senior Week? If so, we want to hear about your experiences. You can reach us at metro at wamu.org. The girl we're about to meet is the same age as many of the June bugs descending this month on Ocean City. 
Her name is Bridget Deese. And like the kids headed to the beach, she's about to graduate from high school. In her case, the Duke Ellington School of the Arts in Northwest D.C. But unlike most 18-year-olds, Bridget has had to cope with unusual medical issues. And to work through those struggles, she's turned to a very particular remedy, writing. As we continue our Beating the Odds series about students who are succeeding despite major challenges, Kavitha Cardoza brings us Bridget's story. Bridget Deese can't remember a time when she hasn't been in severe physical pain. Everywhere, my legs, my knees, my wrists, my fingers, my neck. Like a ton of bricks being thrashed against my legs. My pain is taking up a large percentage of my life. I don't think that I would be the same person without it. When Bridget was little, she didn't have the words to tell people how she felt. Teachers told her she was lazy when she didn't participate in sports. But when she pushed herself to play, classmates were unhappy. I was always the slowest person on the team. And a lot of people would say, you're worth nothing on our team. Why would you play with us if you weren't going to be your best? And it was always frustrating for me because I knew that I was being my best, but my best wasn't good enough. Lazy or slow, it was a lose-lose situation. When Bridget was 12, she got an official diagnosis. She had arthritis. At first, she was relieved. At least she knew what was wrong with her. Then the questions from teachers and classmates started. What is arthritis and why do you have it? Even if a friend had heard about her condition... They would say, oh, that's something my grandmother complains about, leaving me on the verge of tears... I didn't want to be considered different. I wanted to be considered normal. And it just it felt really horrible to know that no one really understood except for my doctors and my family. She longed to be a cheerleader but knew she couldn't do sit-ups. She tries to block memories of the time she was forced to use a cane and was teased mercilessly. And she missed class for doctor's appointments. I would often have to take mornings off of school to go get IV treatments that would cause some relief to the inflammation in my joints. But there were also side effects such as gaining weight and drowsiness. And after a while, I just told my mom that I didn't want to go anymore. School assignments are still challenging, especially when she has to use pen and paper. During the AP test, my hand constricted, and so I had to start writing with my other hand, which hurts, but not as much. And I'm not ambidextric, so I just had to deal through the pain. In spite of this, Bridget maintains a 3.9 GPA. Her life changed when she started writing as a way to express herself. She discovered putting her thoughts on paper was freeing. My fingers would cramp up, but as I started writing, I would just sort of get used to the pain because I found that it was something I liked to do. I just felt like it was who I was. Her mother, her biggest champion, encouraged her. She said, you can share your story with the world, and at least then people will understand. So don't worry about people making fun of you now because it'll work out in the future. Bridget tries not to think about how bad things could get. Knowing how debilitating it can be, just knowing all the possible outcomes of it, having crooked hands or always having pain in your wrists to the point where they wear casts, ending up in a wheelchair or ending up like some of the pictures I've seen on the Internet where um, just not being that way. She trails off. Bridget doesn't have many happy memories of her younger years, so she has one simple hope for her future. I just want to be happy 
a future where my head isn't clouded by thoughts of pain. Bridget rarely shares her story with people. Some of it is a throwback to the time when classmates thought she was making up an illness to get attention from teachers. Some of it is she doesn't want people to feel sorry for her or think she's different. I want them to see an independent young lady and not look at me as the independent young lady with arthritis. I just want them to see someone who isn't making excuses for why she can't do things. I would really like them to see the person I'm striving to be, a person who isn't defeated by her condition. This fall, Bridget is off to the State University of New York at Purchase to study creative writing. I'm Kavita Cardoza. our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we'll visit Northridge in Alexandria, Virginia, and the Shepherd Park neighborhood of Northwest D.C. My name is Rosalind Bovey. I live in the Northridge neighborhood in Alexandria, and I'm 74 years old. Northridge is in the northwest corner of Alexandria. It's bounded by Park Fairfax on the north and Quaker Lane on the west. Since 1648, the neighborhood has been part of nine jurisdictions, but has been attached to the city of Alexandria since 1929. The streetcar line that ran between Alexandria and Washington from 1892 to 1931 led to increased development along Russell Road, one of the boundaries of our neighborhood. It's kind of like a small town. To me, it's sort of like a home village. And what I've always thought about living in Alexandria is that Alexandria is like a real town. It has a, you know, a characteristics of its own. It's not just a suburb of Washington. And people feel a loyalty toward it, just like they feel a loyalty toward their, this neighborhood, Northridge. My name is Rosalind Coates and I live in Shepherd Park. The boundaries of Shepherd Park are to the south, Fern Street to the east, Georgia Avenue to the west, 16th Street, and to the northeastern avenue. What I really liked about Shepherd Park is that it is diverse on purpose. That is Somewhere around in the 50s, an organization called Neighbors, Inc. was established to stem the tide of white flight. When African Americans began moving into the neighborhood and people of other racial and ethnic groups, and there was a concerted effort to create and maintain diversity in in the neighborhood, and that holds today. It's an extraordinarily diverse, All racial and ethnic groups are respected. One of the places that really shows up is during our annual potluck dinner where we get foods from every racial or ethnic group imaginable and it makes for a wonderful, wonderful meal and a great time for fellowship among the members. 
you'll hear from some of the neighbors that a group of us are like shared parents or so our kids, you know, <laughs> have grown up together and so they have moms one, two, and three, dads one, two, and three. It's just really awesome. We heard from Rosalind Bovey in Northridge and Rosalind Coates in Shepherd Park. If you'd like us to knock on your door so you can talk about your neighborhood, send an email to metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. And we have a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far on our website. That's metroconnection.org. Next, a newcomer makes her way in classical music. Playing in an orchestra is very physically demanding. It's like, it's almost like playing a sport, <laughs> which is, that's very surprising to me. That and more is coming your way on Metro Connection here on WAMU 885. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week our theme is rookies. We've already talked with a rookie cop, rookie activists, even rookies in the post-high school grown-up world. And in just a bit, we're going to meet some rookies in the world of female football. First, though, we're going to turn to a different sort of competitive activity, soil judging. Never heard of it? That's all right. Neither had we until we found out that the best college soil judging team in the nation resides right here in our region. Turns out that earlier this year, a group of students from the University of Maryland nabbed the winning trophy in the National Collegiate Soil Judging Contest. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson has the story. You might think of College Park, Maryland as a basketball town. You could also make a case for women's lacrosse. That program has won 10 national championships. Associate Professor of Soil Science Brian Needleman is a bit of a contrarian, however. Yeah, let me tell you, this is a soil judging town. I was also, when I was a student at Penn State, we won a national soil judging contest. And the reaction here at Maryland was at least 10 times bigger. Needleman coached this year's soil judging team, and he's only half joking about that reaction. Upon returning from Wisconsin as victors, his team got a small parade on Maryland Day, lunch with the dean, and even a Twitter mention from Governor Martin O'Malley. This is a soul-judging town. People may not know it, but uh, it's true. We're pretty serious about it around here. So what exactly is soil judging? So students spend about an hour in a soil pit about five feet deep. The first step is to identify the different layers, what we call horizons, and describe their various characteristics, color, texture, structure, or wetness features. Then it gets into a lot of geology. You need to really describe the history of that site and how the soil formed over that history. So the name soil judging is pretty self-explanatory, but in practice, it's anything but simple. And the only way to get a sense of that is to, well, you guessed it, get your hands dirty. Oops, sorry, sorry. Maryland senior Ryan Adams has taken me out to a soil pit on U.S. Department of Agriculture farmland not far from campus. This pit is where rookie team members first learn the rules of soil judging, and right now it's full of water from recent rainstorms. So before we hop in, Adams pumps some of it out so we can actually see the dirt. The top is where things are decomposing, leaves are falling, and carbon's kind of accumulating in this in this um, top layer and so it has a noticeably darker color than the rest 
And once you start to get down a little lower, your carbon percentages start to decrease and you start to get soils that are dominated mostly by minerals. In competition, contestants get scored on observations just like those, and their notes are then compared to a master sheet to see how much of the essential information they got after one hour. Brian Needleman says the big difference between rookie and veteran soil judges is speed. There's always this big difference where the the rookies, it's a huge time pressure. So there's there's a certain, there's a lot of speed stress involved with that. But there's also built-in stress relief. In fact, if you need a stress ball to hold on to, you just grab a hunk of clay and knead it in your hand. That's an actual soil judging technique called texturing, an old-fashioned but fairly foolproof way for soil judges to tell if they're dealing with sandy, silty, or clayey soil, simply by feeling for the size of the particles. For Jack Wang, who started college as a biology major, the hands-on science was a change from his work in sterile laboratories. When they told me, oh yeah, you can just make a ball and then put it in your hand and feel it and you can tell the, tell the percentage of clay, I was like, doesn't that take kind of, kind of years of practice or something? But I eventually got taught uh, different techniques of detecting sand percentages and clay percentages just um, based on like experience after a while. And that experience comes through practice lots of practice. The team travels to competition sites days ahead of time to get to know the region's soil characteristics before the big day. The longest period of time is the practicing. So for example, at the national contest, we practiced at 23 pits before we had to do the five pits that were actually on the contest. And both practice and competition happen rain or shine. In fact, in Wisconsin, at the National Collegiate Soil Judging Contest, students even had to contend with hail. This started with icy rain. And we just, oh yeah, just rain. This is, this is uh, Wisconsin, it's supposed to be cold. And then when it started hailing, we just started laughing. And then, you know, that was just kind of, it was just kind of funny. It's like, it cannot get any worse than this. And of course, it didn't get worse. It got a lot better. Maryland came home with the title, after all. It was Heather Hall's first year on the team. I just was like, I can't believe this. Like, it just, not to be like that, but it just, it felt too easy. Like, for me, it just felt like, wow, I can't believe this is happening. And Coach Needleman says he hopes the newfound attention on his team will allow more people to see why soil judging is the perfect mix of the sloppy and the scientific. There's something about soils that when you learn a little bit about it, a lot of people go off the deep end and be, end up wanting to really devote their lives, careers to it. Ryan Adams hopes he can find a way to make it to the National Soil Judging Contest every year, even after he graduates with his degree in environmental science. He says, believe it or not, it only takes a few dirty sessions in a soil pit before you start to see soil as something beautiful. Ultimately, you're looking at the medium which supports terrestrial life. I mean, without soils, none of that would be possible. And so if you can't find beauty in that, certainly, I don't know, uh, I don't know too many other places where you would be able to find beauty. It's why we're here. (laughs) And that is the dirt on soil judging. I'm Jonathan Wilson. If you want to get your own hands dirty, you can learn more about soil judging and soil science on our website, metroconnection.org.
Our next story is also about a young person venturing out as a rookie of sorts. Tammy Lee Hughes grew up listening to classical music, lots of classical music. Her parents were music teachers and pretty much the only people in their African-American neighborhood who listened to stuff like Bach or Brahms or Beethoven. Hughes started playing violin at the age of four. And now, years later, she's in the middle of a one-year fellowship with the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. She took some time between rehearsal and her evening performance to talk with Metro Connections' Emily Berman about being a rookie in one of the country's most celebrated symphonies. So you grew up in Louisiana. How did you end up here at the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra? The Baltimore Symphony Orchestra has launched an initiative to increase diversity in the symphony orchestra world. And so I am here as part of a fellowship program in which African-Americans are invited to audition and come and play for the orchestra. I flew to Baltimore last June to take the audition, and it was very scary. (laughs) So when you did your audition for the Baltimore Symphony, did you feel like you nailed it, or was it, were you nervous? (laughs) Um, I felt very nervous. I played as a solo recitalist in the United States and Europe, I've even played solos in front of orchestras, and I think I was more nervous for that audition than I was for anything that I have ever done in my life. Um, You basically show up to the hall, you're taken to a small warm-up room, and then you go onto the stage where the concerts take place, and there's a large screen so that the adjudicators can't see you and you can't see them. (laughs) And you play a set of excerpts which are prescribed by the orchestra in advance and they listen to you and and judge you. I have to tell you it sounds horrendous. (laughs) It's just very challenging. I mean it's it's just a lot of pressure to prove yourself in a very short amount of time. But in that instance you got it. So can you tell me about the moment when you realized you would join a major city's symphony oh. orchestra? Well, I was very excited. It's amazing, actually. It's, there's a sense of community in making music with other people. There's some things that you have to be a little more aware of when you're trying to get a bunch of people to play together. I guess they're kind of unspoken rules in a way. We all need to use the same amount of bow. We need to use the same vibrato. We need to make sure that we're listening very carefully so that our pitch blends. It's all about working together. Can you talk about some of the biggest challenges you found that maybe have surprised you? Playing in an orchestra is very physically demanding. It's like, it's almost like playing a sport, (laughs) which is, that's very surprising to me. In my first couple concerts, I was really excited and I was working really, really hard And at the end of the concerts, I just felt like I couldn't move. I felt like I had been in a football game and someone had tackled me and my whole body hurt. I would sit in the chair and the audience would be applauding and everything would die down and the other orchestra members would get up to leave the stage and I would just be sitting there. Like, I cannot move. What have you done to to get better, to feel better? (laughs) I have stopped overplaying in orchestra. You have to be very conservative and efficient with how you do everything. And you can't waste, um, you know, muscle power. Because of the nature of your fellowship, I want to ask about race. How has race impacted the way you feel about being a violin player? And do you feel like it has impacted your career? As an African-American string player, 
I feel caught between two different worlds. In the orchestral world, there are very few African-American musicians on stages. There are reasons for that. I think in the African-American community, classical music is not a big part of the culture. It is a European tradition. Um, I grew up in a community that is predominantly African-American in Baton Rouge, and I was the only person in my age group, in my even generation, I think, who played a string instrument. When I went to college, I went to the University of Minnesota, and I don't remember there being another African-American string player for the first two years, and I think there may have been one for my last two years. And, there were, and this was a, a large music program at a very a wonderful school of music. One of my overriding career goals is to bridge that gap. I would love to see more African-American string players, young people studying string instruments and even pursuing careers in classical music. And I would also love to see more African-Americans attending classical and orchestral concerts. And so one of the, the things that I like so much about the Baltimore Symphony is the Ork Kids program. Um, it's an educational outreach program in which symphony members go into the Baltimore public schools and provide free instruction. A lot of them have never seen an African-American string player. They're like, oh, well, maybe I can do that, too. You seem to have a real appreciation for the tradition of classical music. What is it that you think, at least the community you grew up in, and maybe other communities like, like here in Baltimore, what is it that you think they might love about it? I think a lot of people would say that they don't really listen to classical music, but they haven't heard it live. I think it's breathtaking. It's like what music would sound like in heaven. It's just beautiful. One of the things that we have to do is actually take the music into the communities, especially for African-American communities. They might not just come out to a classical music concert because it's just out of their element. Once that happens, it does unlock something. That was Baltimore Symphony Orchestra fellow Tammy Lee Hughes speaking with WAMU's Emily Berman. You can catch Hughes playing with the BSO through the end of the summer. We have a link to the symphony's performance schedule on our website, metroconnection.org. So we're getting closer to the end of the show, and we've heard about a rookie cop, a rookie writer, even those rookie soil judges. But there's one kind of rookie we have yet to discuss, the rookie athlete. Eric Wolf introduces us to some new athletes on a new sports team here in Washington, D.C., one exclusively dedicated to women. You might think the hardest part of taking up tackle football would be the hitting, right? I want to slam a couple girls here and there. I loved the hitting. That's kind of when I knew that I was in it to stay. Once I realized that I could do it, you know, plunge myself full force at someone, and we both get up and, you know, shake it off. I know something about that made me feel kind of invincible. That was Lydia Melton, Deanna Ravello, and Jordan White, all members of the Washington Prodigy, a women's professional tackle football team formed in September. Members of the Prodigy practice and play their games at Willie Stewart Stadium at Anacostia High School, 
On a cool Tuesday evening, Prodigy players in full pads and a hodgepodge of different colored jerseys and helmets work in small groups on different parts of the field. Prodigy owner Tiffany Matthews is a firefighter and a one-time member of the DC Divas, which for a decade was the region's only women's pro tackle football team. But the Divas had a long roster and not every player got as much field time as they wanted. Last summer, Matthews decided to strike out on her own. She applied for a franchise to the Independent Women's Football League, which was looking for a D.C. team. In September, she formed the Prodigy. To me, it was really huge, women playing football and wearing the pads and everything. Joined by her friend and now general manager, Jordan White, Matthews set about selecting a team name, team colors, finding places to play, and all the rest of the details that go into founding an organization. They held tryouts last fall. It's not really a pass-fail type of thing, like... It's, you fail if you quit. You just stop and say, I can't, you know, that's, that's not going to make any team grow. Most of the women on the team were athletes already. They ran track or played basketball or flag football. For Lydia Melton, a prodigy wide receiver and professional dancer, football is an extension of her personality. And we were playing flag and a six foot two uh, sixth grader <laughs> came and uh, kind of sort of tackled me by accident, but I shook it off and kept moving. Deanna Ravello had never played football before coming to the Prodigy. She plays as an offensive lineman. What's been the hardest thing so far? Trying to learn the play. Head coach Keith Howard says learning football demands more of a player's brain than their brawn. They don't know that, you know, these plays and this whole terminology and all these rules, and it's like, whoa, like I gotta really study. Getting all the players geared up, making sure there's water and most of the other organizational details fall to general manager and player Jordan White. I mean, it honestly feels like I am running, you know, an orphanage. I'm trying to get all of them registered for the first day of school. White, who is also a former member of the D.C. Divas, is a statistician for the Census Bureau. She's been playing football for nine years. In addition to her organizational responsibilities, she plays both offensive and defensive line. But that's the fun part. She and Matthews have to find a way to raise $20,000 in annual expenses, and they need the players to help. Fundraising is still definitely like a task that we definitely have to put a lot of energy into every year. All of the concerns of management fade into white noise as Matthews, White, and the Prodigy suit up for their first game, an April 26th home game against the Keystone Assault of Dillsburg, Pennsylvania. The team struggles early. Players' nerves get the best of them, and a flurry of penalties and miscues leave the Prodigy trailing 12-0 late in the fourth quarter. With a minute and seven seconds left on the clock, Prodigy quarterback Catherine Hemlock runs for the team's first-ever touchdown. Now down only five points, Coach Keith Howard calls for an onside kick, a play intended to give the kicking team, in this case the Prodigy, a small chance to get the ball back and run one or two more offensive plays. The kick comes in low over the ground and bounces once, then twice, skipping through the arms of assault players. For a moment, one prodigy player seems to have the ball. In the end, the assault retains possession. The clock runs out, and the game ends in defeat, but not despair. We are so much better than we were when we started this journey. We are so much better. Just think about how much further we can go. I'm Eric Wolf. You can learn more about the Washington Prodigy and check out photos of the team at practice on our website, metroconnection.org. Before we 
say goodbye today, let's turn the microphone over to you and read from your messages. Kavitha Cardoza's ongoing series, Beating the Odds, has elicited all sorts of feedback from listeners. Her story on Sharnika Glaspie, the engineering student who's graduating after being shot in the leg, really struck a chord with listener Lisa. I am an engineer and one of the few females in engineering when I went to college in the 80s, she writes. I am so impressed with Sharnika Glasby's story. And listener Wendy chimed in as well. I just loved Sharnika's story, she writes. I was really moved by her strength and her determination. I'm a female engineer who is hearing impaired. I graduated from UMass in 1988, so I walked a lonely path in school, too. I would love to shake her hand and reach out to offer her help and support. If you'd like to send a message our way, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is metro at wamu.org. A message to you, Rudy. A message to you, Rudy. A message to you, Rudy. A message to you, And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Emily Berman, Jonathan Wilson, Kavitha Cardoza, and Brian Russo, along with reporter Eric Wolf. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Eva Harder. Lauren Landau and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. All the music we use is listed on our website, that's metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing on our website by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. You can also subscribe to our podcast there or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll dish about dads with a show all about fatherhood. We'll meet a comedy writer turned blogger who's making a career out of his stay-at-home parenting antics. We'll spend a day with a dad who's still in high school. And we'll tag along with a father who's taking his family on a sailing expedition around the world as we bring you the latest in our Elsie Diaries series. We uh, just started the longest leg of our trip to New Zealand. Total distance is just over 3,000 miles. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.